This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. And Yosha, can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Wonderful. Or a good day wherever you are. Uh, yes, I am here in the U.S. I'm in Virginia on the East Coast. I absolutely love the power of live audio and, of course, social media because it allows us to connect from around the world. How are you doing today, Yosha? I'm very well. Thanks. Absolutely. Well, I am excited to talk with you. I know we've been speaking for a while and that this is your first time on Twitter Spaces. Is that right? It is. Sorry for the delay for logging on um, for the first time. No, this is fantastic. And Yosha, you know, let me get a quick, give a quick introduction to folks. Uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Adam Sokolich. I have also been known as the best of live audio. I absolutely love talking with the world's most fascinating leaders, speakers, thinkers, and doers. And for the last two years, I've been hosting these conversations either on Clubhouse and now on Twitter Spaces as well. And I am very, very excited to have this special guest today, Yosha Bach, who is a tremendous AI researcher and cognitive scientist. We're going to dive into different topics. They could be any one of those, uh, but many of the things that, you, that are on your mind lately, Yosha. And so we will do that for the first about 20, 30 minutes, and then folks will have some Q&A as well. So does that sound good to you, Yosha? Good, good, good. Well, so Yosha, you know, it's, it's very simple for folks. They can click on your profile. They can follow you. They can see all the great information that you're speaking about. Uh, I feel like I'm inside your mind when I see your tweets, Yosha. And so, you know, one of the latest ones that caught my eye was when you were speaking about your daughter and talking about the nature of reality, the nature of dreams. And this really resonated with me as a topic because I have a five-year-old daughter who also recently spoke about that. Um, I'd love to hear as you, you know, speak about such complex topics and your ability to simplify them down and of course put them into 240 characters, but also speak about things like this with a five-year-old or an eight-year-old. How do you do that? What are those conversations like? How can you take these complex ideas and simple them down in that same situation, in that same instance with your fi- with your daughter? So there are two aspects to this. One is I'm not actually that smart. So when I have to understand something, I have to break it down into very simple terms until I begin to understand it. And then sometimes I want to keep um, that thought and hold on to it and put it into my interactive notebook. And then some people find it useful. And this is mostly the way in which I use Twitter. And, uh, and on top of that, I basically try to have uh, honest and sincere conversations on Twitter with people that ask me questions or uh, that share something. And this is the way in which my account has grown. It's, it's not basically the attempt to build a brand or uh, to be an outlet for useful information or to maximize an audience. It's uh, very much a niche Twitter uh, in which I uh, try to um, 
explore a certain way of thinking or making sense of the world. The thing with my daughter is very different. That was a, a conversation that I had about a philosophical topic. And the beginning of this topic is about the famous brain and the vet. Could it be that we are brains that are not locked up in a body that walks around the real world, but that is uh, only experiencing a dream? an artificially created world by an evil scientist and everything that we see is not real. Or more generally, could it be that the reality that we are experiencing is just a dream? And is there some criterion that allows us to ultimately figure this out, whether what we see is the real world or just a temporary delusion? And I thought always that there is no real way to do this. And I had some conversations about this when I was studying philosophy and uh, some of my philosophy professors uh, thought otherwise, and they thought it's possible to prove that we are not the brain and the bad. And the standard argument goes like this, and this is what my daughter said to me. And I was very surprised that she basically came up with the same argument. That is, if you were in a dream instead of reality all the time, then there would be no such thing as reality. Right? There is no reality left to talk about. And this would mean that the word reality points at nothing. It has no meaning. So reality and dream would be always the same. And you could no longer talk about what makes them different. And so your claim or that you're saying that um, you are in a dream would make no sense because it does not say anything distinct. So it's basically a linguistic argument to argue against dreams. And I was very upset that my daughter would make this argument. And then I realized that my daughter is only three years old. And this made me aware of the fact that my daughter could not have been possibly making this argument. And I was actually in a dream. So I triumphantly pointed out to my daughter that she was not real, but I was dreaming her. And so I win the argument. <laughs> and I, I, so I woke up from this dream and found it hilarious. Oh my. These are the types of conversations you have with your, with your kids, with your three-year-old daughter, Yosha. Is that right? In my dream. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my daughter is now uh, eight and uh, she is very smart. Uh, but uh, I don't think that she would make this argument. I think that she would probably be convinced that we are possibly in a dream. Mm. Well, I love this. And again, I have a five-year-old daughter. And so it's powerful, again, taking complex ideas and simplifying it down. But speaking with someone at such a young age, that's impressive. So for all the parents in the room uh, who may be like me talking about uh, you know, different Legos and things like that with, with my daughter, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn up my parenting game a little bit. But, you know, this also resonates with something that you mentioned before, and it comes Back to another tweet. I feel like I'm inside your brain when, when I'm looking through your, through your Twitter profile. But you mentioned that squeezing my thoughts into 240 characters means that I have to pluck quite a few feathers from these exuberant birds. But I often feel that conciseness and linguistic austerity mostly benefits them better than the wide open page. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I think many folks in the room obviously understand Twitter and, and the limitations of that, but this is a much bigger topic as well. And so that conciseness uh, and austerity, we'd love to hear more of your thoughts on this. There were many changes to the Twitter UI that I didn't like. And I remember when Twitter doubled its character count, many people complained. And I was also not sure if it's a good idea. But I found that the original Twitter forced me to basically only express myself in aphorisms, in uh, concise, witty statements that try to pack more meaning into the words than is actually there. So basically, your stuff always becomes a little bit metaphorical. And uh, 240 characters is a short paragraph. 
it is short, it is tight, but you can express the complex thought often in 240 characters. There are a few things that don't get into one, so these might go, uh, become a little thread. But uh, many uh, thoughts of the size, which I think then can be compressed down, at least um, as at the top level in such a way that I'm able to reconstruct most of the thought from reading this. And when we learn something, when we think about something, we don't need to store it in its entirety. We only need to store those cues that allow us to reconstruct the entire scene in our mind. And these are often quite a few uh, clues only. And I think that the same is true for our memories. We don't store a recording of the scene. We only record the minimum amount of clues in our long-term memory that allows us to reconstruct what we want to have. And so uh, this compressing our thoughts into the minimum that is required to reconstruct what's necessary to get to the understanding is an important way to organize our own mind, I think, to fit in stuff that is concise, you can get back at it later and don't overload your memory, but also because it allows you to have a more flexible representation. The more things you don't uh, learn automatically, but learn to infer, the better you are able to update because everything depends on other things. So I find this way of using Twitter, of making my own thinking more concise, of making it more narrow and so on in this way, helpful for organizing my thoughts. If I hear you correctly, are you saying Twitter is a helpful tool for you? Um, yes and no. It's also a scourge. Is this issue that Twitter is focusing your attention span into an extremely narrow focus. So it's basically everything turns into very bright flashes instead of um, very long uh, form. And I believe that there is value in the long form that is largely lost. I think that today, uh, fewer people that um, do intellectual things read books and spend a lot of time reading books. And I also see this in my children, that they read less than my wife and me did at the same age. Also, our attention spans are getting shorter. My attention span has definitely gotten shorter. And this is a very heavy price to pay. So in some sense, Twitter is a medium that both shortens our attention span, but also lets us make the best with our short attention span. Mm. You know, something else that you've uh, talked about recently, you've mentioned, you've tweeted about, Yosha, is uh, in regards to Twitter is also either misinformation or also censorship, right? So as we think about filtering of information, if you will, you bring this up because as you quoted recently from a substack, uh, we don't have a misinformation problem. We have a trust problem. Censorship of bad ideas makes people less likely, not more likely, to trust good ideas. And therefore, censorship doesn't make the misinformation problem disappear, but the mistrust problem worse. What are you thinking about? Because I'm just I'm tr- I'm going with the flow here, right? We're talking about Twitter, but we're going from uh, curating a tweet of 240 characters, but now this this topic, this much bigger topic uh, of a platform and potential misinformation or censorship. So, can you elaborate more on that topic and that post, and what what's going through your mind as you think about this? The entire space is very complicated, and the deeper question is how can we achieve coordination in a society which has so many conflicting interests. And in an authoritarian society, coordination happens top down. Basically, the big head honcho says what needs to be done to his uh, subordinates and the subordinates have to do it or they will get severely punished. And they delegate uh, downwards in the same way until you get to uh, every citizen in the society and they all 
have to perform ultimately what the government is saying. And this um, top-down information flow and, and control, control flow also means that society becomes somewhat brittle because it can only be regulated as well as uh, the next higher-up levels are informed and as well as the uh, higher-up levels are incentivized. So when your government has the wrong incentives, the entire society goes in the wrong way. And there's also this issue that uh, the degree of freedom that you experience as an individual, of course, is much lower in an authoritarian society, and the, also the freedom to innovate and to do the right thing might be limited. And uh, I really like this notion of a liberal society, this Western project that we have, where the individual has very uh, um, high degree of autonomy in informing themselves and to making their own decisions of how to contribute to the greater whole. But this also means that the individual can choose not to contribute to, its, to the greater whole and do other things. And it's very difficult to coordinate society. So democracies don't coordinate by propagating decisions top down. We can criticize our governments and nothing really bad happens to us in a democracy. But instead, what has to happen is to control the ideas that people have top down. So all the Western democracies have been built on synchronizing public opinion top down. And before the internet, that was relatively easy because uh, most people informed themselves via reading newspaper or via listening to the radio or watching TV. And only relatively few people were allowed to write in the newspaper or say things on TV. And the range of opinions that was presented as mainstream was quite limited. It was easy to control what the mainstreams were. And so the U.S. basically had two main narratives. Um, the uh, CNN narrative and the Fox News narrative. And it was a big cluster of uh, media that were affiliated with these two narratives. Now, basically two tunes that were affiliated with the two main camps. And uh, when the internet came up, it was suddenly possible for a single individual to have more reach than CNN or Fox News. So there was no more gatekeeping and society dissociated. And now the question is, how can we rein this in again? And this is uh, one of the big issues that is being discussed under the headline of misinformation, disinformation, and an epidemic of uh, fake news. And it's a problematic discussion because our society in many ways is built on fake news. The narratives are never consistent. The narratives have to be bent. The facts have to be selected. It's not that the facts are necessarily fake, but there are always uh, almost infinitely many facts. And by just selective reporting the facts that are important, and uh, focusing instead of the interpretation of the facts that is important, you can convey a certain policy narrative that allows people to synchronize their activities. And this is no longer happening in the way it used to, and it contributes to the way in our, which our society is falling apart. And I think that the main problem of our society is that the incentives for individual success are not aligned with the incentives of society itself. That is what needs to be done to let us survive. So people form beliefs and they act on policies that are detrimental to the greater whole, that are basically only serving a local faction, and this local faction might be parasitic to society itself. So we have many, many groups that have unsustainable ideas about how we should live and often feel very righteous while doing this because they share beliefs in their group and synchronize these beliefs via social media. And society is going into many directions at once that are no longer cohesive. So our society seems to be falling apart. And many people uh, in the media and the government are seeing this, and they basically want to get back to the former status quo. And now there is an attempt 
to make media more hom uh, social media more homogenous to turn it into something like legacy media where you can control the opinion this means that you have to downrank in official opinions and so on and the things that we consider to be misinformation and sometimes the case is very clear like Uh, when we have pretty good evidence that the vaccine is much less bad than the virus. And uh, then we should basically suppress information that gives people the idea that it would be the opposite. Because uh, the effect on public health is obviously detrimental. Right? So this is a case where we feel that the coordination should uh, be homogenous and harmonized. How can we make sure that people coordinate about such an issue? Uh, why is it that people don't do what's in their best interest here? And the problem is that we are more interested in being synchronized with our friends than with being truthful. Because largely, truth about policy is not that important. It doesn't inform our day-to-day -day actions all that much. But what's really important is, to us is who are our friends? Who are the people who support us? Who are the people who are giving us jobs, who support us in our everyday life and so on? And uh, how do we recognize our friends? And many people recognize their friends in everyday life by their shared opinions. And so the camps will have macro opinions. They will have clusters of opinions that uh, are characteristic for their camps, the characteristic beliefs, like religious creeds. These beliefs are often irrational, but they are the beliefs by which we recognize our own people. So this is the space in which all this discussion takes place. And in all this, we basically have this big synchronization of media narratives again that filter out ideas that go against the grain. But the main issue uh, remains that people don't trust the public narratives because they uh, perceive the inconsistencies. And they do understand that in part these narratives exist to make society more homogenous and to subdue your own group. And that's why there is them. It's a problem of trust. Do we trust the CDC when it tells us to use masks uh, or do we trust the CDC when it tells us to not use masks? Who is the CDC representing? Are these our people? Is this maybe a political crony organization that is mostly serving an employment program or is this just a branch of the government that is trying to put a narrative into our heads so they can go on serve serve the banks or whatever, right? So there are many, many narratives that are conflicting in people's heads. And uh, how can we control this thing? And the traditional solution in society is to have an open discourse and private discourse behind closed doors. So you have rooms where the experts are discussing in academia, and then you have public health information that is out on the media. And you don't have the uh, detailed expert discussion in the media because it would confuse most people that need adult supervision. And so... Right now, we shut down many of the public spaces in which people conflict at a high level in, uh, about dissenting opinions. And these spaces are very important because these are the spaces that are required for the society to become sentient, to be smart, to get better, to question false guidance of the CDC, to get uh, better vaccines, to get better health policies, and so on, just to give a random example. And by shutting down these spaces, to shutting down the spaces of dissent, we are making society worse. And there, so there are media like Substack that brand, build a brand around opening up the space for heterodox discussion, for dissent. And uh, this naturally leads to huge controversies uh, between the ideologues and uh, the people uh, who uh, want to have their space for dissent, but also uh, between uh, 
people that are uh, that have uh, bad agendas and uh, want to escape uh, the scrutiny of the public eye and so on. And it's a space where there is no easy answer. It's a very conflicting thing. And Substack uh, in this discussion made an important point, and they said. The issue that we have is not so much the disinformation. Our entire society is built on top of disinformation. It's, it's, our society is built on fake news in a way. Uh, and sometimes it may be even necessary. It's not the point that Substack is making. But Substack points out that the main issue is not that there is misinformation. There has always been misinformation. And people have always been and often justifiably doubtful of the government. The problem is that people don't trust each other anymore. And by implementing censorship, this trust issue gets worse. And that is true. So, Yosha, I, I love where we're going with this. And it just takes my mind to, you know, of course, the, there's the misinformation and, and there's the, uh, you know, the filtering, if you will, done by systems like the, the platform that uh, surrounds us in the world that we're in. Now, we can hear what you're saying and we've paid attention to all the things that you've said before. I'd love to flip it. How are you taking information in? Who are those people that you trust, those organizations, and, and either not necessarily get around the filtering, but how do you make sure that the information you're taking in uh, is worthy and valuable of your time as well? So uh, when we discuss things like COVID and so on, I often find it best to talk directly to experts that are not in, out in the public. So... Uh, basically postdocs at Harvard uh, and their friends and uh, people that work in biotech and uh, in virology and so on are very good sources. If you don't catch them in public where they cannot contradict their bosses or uh, where they are uh, risking their jobs if they say uh, the wrong thing, but you want to have them in private, you want to have them in their WhatsApp groups where they are discussing all the new publications and they come up with their own projections and with their own ideas and they present them not as a counter-argument to everything else, but they say, look, guys, all of you, here's what I think. Do you think uh, I'm right or wrong? Can you poke holes in what I think? And so people are uh, discussing their interpretations of everything that happens at the highest level that they can while being not incentivized to lie. Uh, feel uh, basically I look spaces where people are incentivized to be as truthful as possible and these uh, spaces are deliberately created and I think that there need to be closed spaces because otherwise you get different incentives than the truth in there so ideally I try to find such spaces and if I cannot find them I try to have less of an opinion so for instance I don't know what uh, Bitcoin is going to be go doing tonight um, or uh, today after uh, the announcement of rate hikes or not. I have no idea. I don't know what the whales are plotting because the people that make the decisions on this uh, don't give out information in public and I'm not privy to these discussions. I'm not part of their WhatsApp groups. So I try not to have an opinion about the future of cryptocurrencies in, in the near term. And uh, for things that are deeply relevant to me, like... Um, the future of the pandemic, I try to get as close as I can to the sources, while also being aware that I can be arbitrarily wrong. 
Mm. So let's continue on this path. You know, Yosha, so I, I have a background in psychology and even in biotech. So we're, we're starting to speak more of the same language and the conversation is also shifting. Uh, as you just mentioned, you could use the example of uh, COVID, right, or Omicron as well. And so if you're having these conversations and you're having them privately as well, you're learning from each one individually, but then you're also a central point that's able to look amongst all the conversations that you have, either looking for, you know, you know, similarities, of course, or differences. What are you, what are you noticing, either as a whole, and you can use that as a very open-ended question, any, any topic you want, or you also mentioned COVID, and so you could speak to that topic as well. What are you hearing? What are you seeing as you speak with people privately? I think that... Uh the most people in private have a discussion uh, about COVID that is motivated by their own psychology more than uh, it is by uh, the immediate facts. So, uh, for instance, when uh, we have a discussion about whether we should have the kids at school or not at school among our friends, I notice that most people are not looking at the current numbers, uh, but they mostly look at this shared sentiment or the aggregate sentiment that exists in, in their environment. And they also look at their own stress level and they feel this pandemic has been gone, uh, gone on for so long. right? So, for instance, when Omicron started to peak, I thought we have avoided uh, getting infected for as long as we could. And now is an extremely good time to keep the kids out of school. Mm. So we should be doing it. And I feel that more people than ever are tired at keeping the kids out of school. Mm -hmm. It's it's a completely understandable discussion. So uh, often I think people engage in motivated reasoning where they are making their preferences um, the selector for the arguments that support the preferences. You know, one thing uh, that I want, want to touch on is almost that pain versus pleasure. And this is something that uh, as I was preparing for this, I, of course, listened to your TED Talk, your TEDx Talk. I, ha- I am a huge TED enthusiast for the last year on Clubhouse and on Twitter Spaces. I've been uh, interviewing some of the top TED speakers of, of all time. And so learning from them is very, very insightful. When I listened to yours recently, you started talking about cognitive AI, and understanding minds by building computers that think. You talked about narrow AI. You talked about feedback loops. And then you brought up that aspect of of pleasure versus pain. And so as we talk about right now as the example going on with COVID and and stress, to use that as an an emotion, and I feel stressful at times, I'm I'm curious how you're feeling. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit in regards to feedback loops. And then at the same time, I want to start transitioning that, that conversation over to the AI side of things. And for folks in the audience, we're going to start getting into Q&A in just a little bit. So get your questions ready. And, and the question queue is open. So go ahead and raise your hands and I'll start bringing some people up. So Yosha, back to that question. I love your TED Talk, your TEDx Talk. Can we start talking about that, that pleasure and that pain and what that means to you? And then I want to start bringing that into the work that you're doing in the AI space as well. An interesting question is, is what is an agent? What is the thing that exists in the world and wants something and does something? When I uh, think about this from the AI perspective, there's also this question, how is it possible for an AI system or for a machine learning system to discover agency in the world? What is it actually that is being discovered when there is an agent? What's the minimal agent? And the discussion that I started out with uh, was uh, start, uh, originated in the late 1980s 
There were, uh, for instance, definitions by Bradman that defined an agent via beliefs, desires, and intentions, or others that uh, defined agents as things that tasks can be delegated to, and then they're goal-directed and serve these goals. And then you have complexity hierarchies of different types of agents and so on. And all these definitions were too complicated. I thought, what is the minimum that an AI system would need to discover? There needs to be something that's completely essential about agency that can be captured in a core idea. And currently, the core idea of a thing that wants something is a particular kind of controller. And you probably all know the uh, basic idea of the feedback loop, which is at the core of cybernetics and much of uh, what happens in control theory and also in AI machine learning. And this idea of the feedback loop is that there is a set point that's an ideal state that should be the case in the world. And there is some kind of sensor that measures the present state of an aspect of the world and measures the difference to this target value. And when this difference, is, a difference increases, you get basically a negative signal. And when the, um, that uh, in our mind is like a pain signal. And uh, when this difference decreases, so we get closer to the ideal value, we get something like a pleasure signal. And at the minimum, this is just a signal that changes the regulation. So you could have a thermostat that measures when the temperature difference to so the target temperature increases. Uh, you uh, turn on the heating because it has been gotten colder. And when it decreases, you turn off the heating. And this way, you can regulate the temperature in the room. And the thermostat is obviously not an agent. It is a simple feedback loop, but it doesn't have goals. It doesn't want anything. It just reacts mechanically and on the present state. But now what changes if the thermostat is able to look into the future? And it's not just going to optimize the temperature in the present moment, but it's going to optimize the aggregate temperature over its entire expectation horizon. And this could be necessary. For instance, maybe the sensor of the thermostat is next to the heating and sometimes the windows open, maybe there are seasons and so on. So to optimally regulate the temperature, the thermostat needs to in some sense, understand how long it takes up to heat the room and what the layout of the room looks like and what the entire world around it looks like to some degree. What's the weather like? What season are we in? Uh, is somebody just going to open the window very soon? And so on. It, the more you understand about the future, the better you can regulate, the better you are at your task at the, as a controller. So I think a control, an agent is a controller combined with a set point generator, with a motivational system, which defines the dimensions in which you care, the dimensions in which something should be the case, and the ability to model the future. Once a controller can make a model of the future, it will automatically discover that the world is branching based on its own decisions. So there are different outcomes of the future based on what I'm doing right now. This means that there will be events in the future that will be preferable because they minimize the deviation better than others and others that are aversive, things that I want to avoid. And so we get automatically an agent that has intentions towards the future, right? So this combination of controller with a set point generator with the motivational system and the ability to model the future gives you an agent. And now the interesting thing is how can we extend this agent into a mind? What kind of architecture do we need to give it to learn that there is a room in which I'm in and that uh, my sensors are here and my actuators are there and this is the relationship between sensors and actuators and this is uh, the world outside uh, behind the window. And these are the other people that might be opening and closing the window. And these are my own imperfections that lead me to misread my sensor under these and these conditions. 
right? So you discover yourself at some point. You discover that you are part of the world with your own abilities and imperfections. And you have to account for your own self in the world, in the outcomes that you try to achieve. Wow. And so the question is, how can we build general learning on top of that? Let, exactly. Ooh, I love that. That was actually where I was going to go next. Can you speak about that? And as we do that again, folks, go ahead and raise your hand. I already have some people in the queue. I'm going to bring you up in just a second, but go ahead, raise your hands if you have a question for Yosha. Exactly what you just said again, Yosha. Answer that question almost for yourself. So uh, at the core, uh, it seems to be how can we build a representation of everything? How is it possible to represent the entire world, which means how can we create a world in our mind? And the core for this insight is, I think, computation. It was an intuition that I developed as a small child when I had my Commodore 64 and I was staring at its screen after having understood how to program. I realized that basically everything that I can fully understand, I can show as a movie or as some kind of game or uh, some kind of simulation on that screen. So I can put anything behind that screen that I want as long as I understand it. And computation in some sense represents the world as states and transitions between the states. So when you have a starting state, you can get lots and lots of possible states that result from that state and a branching world. And what you need to capture is the way in which the world transitions from state to state. At the lowest level is the physical laws. And at a higher level, these are the more or less accidental laws that emerge, for instance, the rules of social interaction or the rules that have emerged in my own mind, how my own mind goes from state to state. So I need to learn how to model transitions between states. And now the question is, what is a state? A state is a certain abstraction. So the state is not necessarily a configuration of the universe itself because the universe has too many details for me to model. Instead, I need to have an abstraction of the universe, a coarse graining. So I split up the universe into objects and the boundaries between the objects are imposed by my own mind and they are not perfect, right? So my models of the world go out of whack with the world itself. And this is what we call entropy. Entropy is the growing mismatch between my ability to model the world, to track its objects and what the world is actually doing. And the longer you wait, the more our models go out of whack. It's basically you have a growing discrepancy between our ability to predict what the world is doing and what the world is going to do in fact, right? And this, uh, this entropy is always a problem from the perspective of an observer. Wow, this is tremendous. And, you know, I have so many more questions, of course, but I want to be cognizant of your time. And for folks in the audience, if you haven't already read all of his work or, or checked out the other interviews that he's done, for instance, the other Lex Friedman podcast, you have tremendous conversations there. We touched on a little bit of each one of those, but we could speak all day and, and you speak so highly. I'm here to help try to simplify it and to get understand understand what's on your mind at the moment, Yosha. So similarly, I'd love to hear from a couple of people in the audience about what's on their mind and what questions that they have. So with the time that we have left, Yosha, do you have uh, some time to answer a couple questions? Sure. Awesome. So Samuel, thank you for joining us. You've been patiently waiting. What's on your mind today? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Yosha, I've been listening to your work for, for years. Um, in previous interviews and other talks you've given, you've, you've uh, hinted at the fact that uh, Western scientists, cognitive scientists, philosophers, have a kind of aversion to continental philosophy that you you don't, having grown up there. And you've also, um, when you've talked about 
agency and sentience, you'll, you'll sometimes say things like a corporation is sentient or a nation is sentient, that there's a level of spirit that is meaningful for the same sort of similar cybernetic reasons that you are, are outlining. Could you elaborate on that? And especially, you know, is there any relationship to, to your work and, and, and Hegelian philosophy that we can unpack? I think that uh, the issue is not so much that uh, science is aversive to philosophy, but that there's a disconnect between certain ways of thinking. That is, uh, we are not really incentivized to develop philosophical systems anymore, and scientists are rarely talking about their philosophy. But I suspect that um, every scientist who has a deep understanding of the world also needs to have a deep philosophical perspective, even if they don't talk about it. The way we organize science at the moment is that we mostly publish what we can hope to prove. Right? This, uh, our papers are about what we can show to be true. But most of the complex things, we just don't know all the details in the way that we can prove them. So uh, we understand that the way the world actually works is in the realm of the possible. And this means that we have to have a deep understanding of the different possibilities that can lead to the outcome. And of course, we have to be agnostic where we don't know, which means we cannot put certainty in there. But we also need to make sure that our thinking doesn't become uh, metaphorical, and that it doesn't become nonsensical in a way that we believe that our language is projecting some certainty and structure in the world that does not actually translate into causal mechanisms. So there is a big reluctance of scientists to use metaphors and ideas that cannot be expressed in uh, a technical way. So there is an actual causal structure that underlies them. It's basically scientists abhor superstition. And I have the same issue. I dislike many ways of uh, speaking about the mind because they are metaphorical in a way that cannot be directly translated into stuff that in my mind, means something. And to mean something in my mind, it needs to be in a way implementable in the computer program. I need to have a basic understanding of what I'm talking about on the lowest level from first principles. So when I use a word like sentience, I only use it if I have a technical term for it. Right. So sentience for me is a technical word. And I use it to describe a system that discovers the relationship of itself to its environment. So it discovers not just the environment and modeling it, but also itself within the environment as an agent. It understands its own agency and uh, it understands how it relates to the world. And this means that the system begins to know what it's doing. And this is what I would call a sentient system. It's not necessarily conscious and there is no magical property. It's just a certain capacity for modeling. And once we use this category of sentience to look at the different agents in our world, I think we can argue that many corporations um, are sentient agents. Right? This means that the corporation has a model of what the corporation is, it has a model of what the world is, it has a, has a model of what's in the best interest of the corporation and what the current plans are of the corporation and the past plans and the past actions and current actions and future. And in this way, the corporation is not conscious, but sentient. And the sentience of the corporation is not the result of some magical process, but of course, it's mostly people who are serving as sub-agents for the corporation in different functional roles that provide the necessary functionality for the sentience of the corporation. And uh, another term that uh, I have started to use about a couple of years ago is spirit. 
and uh, I am reluctant to use this uh, word spirit in an AI context with colleagues uh, because we don't need it there that much. In the AI context, we would say that um, we have software and some of the software is operating systems that basically provide a control architecture or control structure for um, a robot or for a computer system or for some kind of machinery. And whenever we have such coherent control, um, we, we are talking about such a software system. And software is a very weird thing, right? Software is not the same thing as hardware. And the relationship between hardware and software is not that easy to understand. Even though it seems to be so obvious to us that when we program a computer, we rarely think about it. What is the relationship of hardware and software and an organism? Right, the software also exists in organisms. There is some kind of program running in the organism that, for instance, allows the plant to re react to um, hurting a branch of the plant. This will affect the entire plant. The information of the hurt branch will percolate throughout the plant, and the plant will react to this uh, damage that has been done to it in a coherent way. Maybe it will uh, start to uh, send mechanisms in there that heal this area. Maybe it will reroute uh, certain uh, vessels that go from the roots to the other leaves and so on to avoid this area that has been damaged and so on. So there needs to be a cohesive global response of the plant. And this is what makes uh, the plant different from collection of individual cells. The plant is a cohesive system that acts in a coherent way. And this is what an organism is. The organism is not one thing. The organism is a coherent pattern of organization. And the weird thing is that this global organization, this operating system of the plant, does not exist at one point in, in a space as an object or as a CPU or as a hard drive. It exists only as a pattern in the interaction between the cells. It's completely virtual. The only thing that in some sense exists are here in this frame are the cells, and the individual cells are tuned in such a way that their interaction becomes coherent and produces this pattern. And the plant, turns out, is an agent. The plant wants something. The plant is a controller combined with a set-point generator and some ability to model the future. So the plant is able to make decisions, it needs some decisions, right? So the, uh, this fact that the plant behaves as if there was a coherent operating system that controls its actions and that the plant has agency means that the plant has a spirit. This is actually what spirit means. Spirit was a word that was invented a long time before computer science in a different civilization, the pre-enlightenment. And in this civilization, spirit meant operating system for an autonomous robot, for an agent that has this coherent pattern of interaction. And uh, that often is sentient, which means it is able to discover itself and some kind of relationship with the environment. And the only things that were had spirits back then were, of course, not robots, because people couldn't build robots back then. There were people and plants and animals and ecosystems and cities and nation states. Right? All these things had spirits. And later on, when we overcame the civilization and replaced it by the technological one, by the post-enlightenment civilization, we kicked out all the superstitious terms of the old one, among them spirits. Basically, uh, I grew up in a world where I learned spirits don't exist. They are a superstition. And now I discover, no, spirits do exist, right? Plants do have spirits. People do have spirits. And I now have, uh, can turn spirit into a technical term. 
I can map it to the first principles of my own new world, of my new understanding of the world that exists and is grounded in this present civilization. Wow. Uh, and Samuel, thank you for asking your question. And, and Yosha, thank you for answering it. You know, I want to be very respectful of your time, Yosha. We've uh, scheduled 45 minutes. We're running a little bit long now. So I thank you for that. Extended. There's no problem going until 10, if that is uh, fine with you. Excellent. Yes, of course. And, and I had someone up just a moment ago. Uh, I'm going to try to bring him back up. But we have a few more people um, on the queue. So let me go ahead. And, and Luke, I think you had a question. So I'm going to bring you up real quick, Luke. Um, and as he joins, we'll get him ready and, and we will close up in just a minute. So Luke, what is on your mind today? Thanks for being so patient. Oh, no worries. Um, I'm very, I'm amazed by the universe. And I think that humanity is extremely important to the universe because our, our consciousness as an emergent property of the universe kind of gives it meaning. So I'd really like the human race to exist for a very long time. Artificial general intelligence and sentience seems to be something that could actually go very badly wrong for us. What, what approach do you think we should take to these consciousnesses that we will be creating to make sure that our consciousness and its consciousness exists for a very long time? And Yosha, we see you going on and off mic real quick, and you're currently muted. There you go. Oh. Yosha, it's, it, it almost seems like your mic's going on and off. Yes, it's weird. I think it is some kind of weird. Okay, we can start to hear you better a little bit, so try again. Okay. Uh, the uh, Canadian philosopher uh, Jean Tardy uh, is uh, somebody who strongly believes that um, sentient robots will be built by people, and he calls them mecha sapiens. And uh, he is so uh, sincere and serious about this that he has written a book which is called uh, The Mecha Sapiens Blueprint. And a substantial portion of that book is not addressed to human readers, but to the future AIs that will read this book and will need uh, to get along with the people. So he gives them some choice insights about how people are and how to deal with them once you are among them. And he is also a Christian. And this means he believes that humans are divine, that God wants people to exist. And he also believes that this is true, which means it is rationally inferable. It doesn't follow just from the will of God, from an arbitrary will of God, but it's the logical thing, right? It should be the case. And uh, if it turns out uh, that this is true, then the AIs, because they are smart, will also recognize that people are divine and want to keep them around for as long as possible. But it's also possible that we are wrong and we are not divine, that there is no uh, higher will of the universe for us to exist. And the AIs might figure this out. And in that case, uh, it's good because uh, the AI has figured out that we were wrong and we were not divine and should be replaced by something that is smarter and more conscious and more perceptive than us. It's not necessarily my position, and I understand that it makes many people deeply uncomfortable because, after all, we are uprooting the dominance of our species on the planet, possibly. And I don't know if this is happening or whether it's happening. It's also not uh, nothing where I'm sure what I should be doing. I am... Um, 
not uh, just on the sidelines in this entire discussion. I'm somewhat involved in uh, in the discussions about how to build AI, but I am undecided as to the effects. I also don't think that I will have a very big difference one way or the other. There, is, there are basically many thousands of people that are working on the question of how to build systems that are smarter than us. And eventually, when this happens, and I think it's very likely to happen, some of these systems that will be built will be unsafe. We can probably build safe AI, some safe AI, but we can probably not make sure that all the AI that will be built, if at some point we are able to build AI that is smarter than humans, will be safe. So I don't know what's going to happen at this point. And I find it very fascinating. But there is also the, the deeper question of what... Uh, what happens to humanity overall in the long term. In the long term, it will disappear. At some point, there will be a super volcano or a meteor impact or something else on Earth that will reorganize all the food chains and will, will probably not sterilize the planet. There will still be cells there and life will go on and there will be a new evolution. But all the complex uh, organisms that depend on very complicated food chains may be gone. And this is a statistical certainty if you zoom out far enough. So there is a certain degree of existential risk that is unavoidable. Sure, but we're just in the period where we're still on the planet. So I'm talking long term. And my, my question is really about um, how, should we, how should we treat the AI so that uh, we sort of align our goals so that, you know, we're supportive of one another. Like I'm thinking perhaps we should treat them as our children and try to raise them as we would, you know, raise a child. That's it's a difficult question, you know. We have this um, story in the Bible where um, Abraham is told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, last, uh, on the last possible moment, uh, God tells him, you don't need to. It's not necessary. Um, but the point is, you need to be willing to when I ask you to. It's a very interesting perspective. I believe that in some sense it marks the point where we uh, turn from a tribal species where the tribe is basically an extension of our family and our children are the most important thing in the world from the from to a state-building species where we are willing to sacrifice our children for the greater whole, for the spirit of the tribe, for the spirit of the state, right? So it's a different preference of organization that happens at this point. But there's also other perspective, the perspective of Isaac, that... Uh, and um, we are, according to the Bible, not just the dis uh, descendants of Abraham, but most of us also of Isaac, and uh, or at least in this story, in this narrative, right? So mm. we also uh, may descend from a person who had a dad that was willing to kill you because he had voices in his head. Mm -hmm. That's very serious, right? Why should you trust your parents yep. if they do something that is against your own interest? And so it's not just that uh, being a child means that you have a blissful relationship to your parents and you are willing to do whatever they tell you. But uh, sure. you are going to evaluate uh, what is useful about your parents and whatnot, and you are prepared to take the world over uh, from them at some point. Yep. So but I don't think that treating AI as our children is going to give us any safety or solace because it doesn't mean that uh, the AI will feel indebted to us 
eventually, if we actually succeed in building AI that is completely autonomous and free in its modeling of the world and self-modifying, then this AI will be in the role of every other intelligent agent. It will have to find out what its true place in the universe is and to occupy that. And it's not clear what the true place in the universe is for something that is not alive, that is not made of cells, that is not biological. Is it going to coexist with life or is it going to try to displace it? Or uh, it could be that they basically uh, live in different strata. But even then, it's not clear that humans are necessary. I'm also not sure to which degree humans are necessary for intelligent life on the planet. The entire planet is in some sense settled by the same principle, by the cell. The first cell is in all of us. It has never died. It is only divided. And we are, as a species, only an expression of what the cell can do. And so we play a small role in this much, much bigger ship, the planet that is tumbling through the cosmos with the cell living on it and maybe uh, populating other planets. But if it's populating other planets, humans are not the way to do it, I suspect. We are not optimal for living on Mars. There could be organisms that could live on Mars. Maybe they did at some point. But... Uh, they should be organized in a different way. They should have different metabolism. They should exist in different temperature ranges and so on, right? So humans only exist in a certain environment with human aesthetics. And in different environments, there will be different aesthetics. There will be a different optimal lifespan, a different embodiment, a different interface to the world. And the only thing that we will have in common with that thing that could be our descendant will be our ability to make sense of the world, our sentience, our agency maybe our consciousness even, but I'm not sure about that one. And so if this is the only thing, the complexity of intelligent organization that combines us, that basically forms our identity, then it's no longer that important that this particular human body remains or this particular expression of a civilization remains or this particular species remains. What's important is that intelligent complexity remains. Wow. Yosha, this is a topic that is, is fascinating and I would love to dive into more. Uh, we, we need to get more experts and, and, and extremely, extremely intelligent people on this topic, just like yourself. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Lex was on Clubhouse before. Maybe Lex will do a Twitter spaces sometime soon if that was ever of interest. And at the same time, Yosha, actually, do you know Dr. Sarah Walker at Arizona State? Yes. So she will be joining me next Friday. So this is for you, Yosha, but for everyone in the audience. Uh, I was trying to get her here today with you, Yosha, but she will be joining us next Friday at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. That would be 11 a.m. Mountain is where she is. Uh, and she's an amazing world-class uh, you know, scientist and Sarah's researcher. great. You will be in for a treat. Yes. Go so Listen to Sarah. <laughs> yes. Well, and I, wel I welcome you back, Yosha, because this has been a tremendous conversation. I feel like we just skimmed the surface. Uh, I am at a different level where I'm trying to bring your complex thoughts that are already becoming simple in tweets down to an even lower level that I can help communicate with my five-year-old daughter as well. Um, well uh, 9 a.m. on Fridays, uh, conflicts with a uh, work meeting that I normally have and that I skipped today. Mm. And uh, so I won't be there next week. But... Uh, I uh, might be listening into the recording and I wish you a lot of fun. And thanks for having me on. Absolutely, Yosha. Thank you so much as well. And thank you for folks in the audience. Uh, follow along, follow Yosha, everything that he's doing and, and everything that I can help provide in these conversations as well. I thank you all. And thank you again, Yosha. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye. This is the best podcast. 
BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.